hear the word of God. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And we'll break off there mid-argument, but that's enough text for one sermon. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful again for your word, and we ask you that uh, once again through the weakness of preaching, you might enable your word to be illumined for the sake of your people, and that together we might come in submission under the teaching and, uh, and the penetrating light of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we, we uh, broke for a single uh, week last week just to consider the subject of the deacons and, and praying that uh, in God's good time, uh, but also uh, as a result of the initiative of the people, we might begin to see uh, deacon nominations for this church. Uh, if only so that, as I argued in the sermon, uh, the church would really begin to thrive and move forward. If you ask the Lord, is there anything that's holding this church back? Well, I've pinpointed one obvious feature. Uh, and we saw that even the early church, with all of her zeal and all of her power in the spirit, was not able to overcome a lack of deacons. And, and thus that sermon. But coming back uh, to what is our regular practice, and that is uh, expositing uh, a book straight through, we are... Uh, picking up the argument where we left off and where we left off last time was Paul in uh, chapter two, verses 17 through 24. Uh, now calling the Jew by name, he spoke uh, to him in chapter two, verse one as, oh, man. But in verse 17, he says, you are called a Jew. He, he is speaking to the Jew and he is identifying his hypocrisy in those verses in particular, verses 17 through 24. The man who trusts in that which does not save. That was the real emphasis of that sermon. Boasting in that which is outward only, but not inward and saving. And, and doing that, Paul finishes off the Jew. As I said earlier, he, he pursues him into his fortress. Uh, what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the last bastion of the Jew's defense. Or Robert Haldane says... He pursues the Jew into his last retreat. And here that is the outward sign of circumcision, which we know from Genesis 17. And we also know from the history of the early church that this was something that was uh, both from the standpoint of history, biblical history, but also from the standpoint of the Jew and his own identity of himself, even after conversion to Christianity, was something that was deeply important. It was a sign that God gave to Israel. And the position of the Jew in the day of Paul was, was simply this, uh, stated succinctly in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. You remember the problem that arose in the early church and, 
And Paul is dealing with this here, and we find him dealing with it in many of the epistles, because that early church, as I said last week, was a diverse church, Jew and Gentile coming together. This was something they were having to work out together. Paul had to address the Jews who felt, chapter 15, verse 1 of the book of Acts, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Uh, Unless you observe the law of Moses, which uh, for them included uh, and was especially exemplified in in the rite of circumcision, you cannot be saved. Well, actually, the language is unless you are circumcised according to the law or the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so in the eyes of a Jew, circumcision is what made you or made uh, himself a Jew. It meant that he was saved. It meant that he was safe and secure. And we notice here again the way uh, the apostle is pursuing the Jew of his own day. The way in which he anticipates an objection which was sure to follow based upon what what he's just said. Verses 17 through 24, he proves Uh, that the law was no refuge for the Jew. And uh, following that argument, he anticipates with great skill what uh, the objection of the Jew might have been, most likely. In essence, that circumcision was given before the law. God gave the law through Moses in Exodus chapter 20, but circumcision came way before that. Circumcision was something that God gave to Abraham. A sign and a seal of the old covenant. And so the argument ran that circumcision was in itself proof that the Jew was safe. That is the one who was circumcised according to the custom of Moses. That he could, in other words, as he hid in uh, the bastion of circumcision, he could never be under or exposed to the wrath of God. Which is Paul's whole argument that Jew and Gentile alike are under the wrath of God because they're lawbreakers. But wait a second, the Jew would say, what about circumcision? What about the sign of the covenant? God's sign to the people, which he gave to Father Abraham. Have you forgotten about that, Paul? The question is, this is a question which I'll answer from the perspective of the Jew here and, and hope later on to give uh, a more biblical answer. But what was it a sign of? Well, from the perspective of the Jew, and I would imagine the same thing is true today, it is a sign of his electing covenantal love and favor and promise to love and keep them and to be their God always. In other words, again, you see how I'm articulating it. It's a position of safety and security. And if you are within the walls of circumcision, so to speak, then you are safe. You are a Jew. God's wrath cannot touch you. And so here they felt they had won the argument. That nothing so proved the claim of the Jew as being one of safety as the fact of circumcision. You could point out. And you could even prove that the Jew had not kept the law, as he had done in the prior verses. But you couldn't argue with the fact of circumcision, the sign of the covenant which he bore on his own body. Here was conclusive proof from the standpoint of the Jew of God's favor and love. And and consequently, as I've been saying, of the safety and the privilege of the Jew. But Paul's objection was simply, in essence, that circumcision as an outward sign, has no value apart from the corresponding inward reality. 
In the same way, possessing the law as an outward privilege has no value. It has no inherent value apart from keeping the law. And again and again, we see the Jew making this fallacy. His point uh, then with regard to circumcision is the last bastion of the Jew was that it avails nothing, in fact. It profits nothing, he says. Circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Not only does disobedience uh, make circumcision unprofitable, Paul actually says that it makes your circumcision uncircumcision. So far does it uh, uh, keep you from the wrath of God. It actually becomes the, re- the reverse. In fact, he goes on to say in verses 26 and 27 that it would actually, and he is arguing hypothetically here, but it would actually be better to be uncircumcised and keep the law than the reverse. You would be better off from the standpoint of the wrath of God if you never were circumcised in the first place as a Gentile, but you actually kept the law. Of course, we know the Gentiles don't keep the law either. So it's a point he's just making for the sake of argument. But as it was... The Jew possessed the outward sign while lacking that which it represented, namely inward transformation and obedience. And we already know this from the Old Covenant or the Old Testament because the prophets spoke of the circumcision which was of the heart. Uh, I'll, I'll return to that in a moment. But just listen to what Paul says here in verses 28 and 29 as he sums up the argument. He's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. Again, in agreement with the prophets. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so, Paul comes back to the basic assertion that he's made all along in chapter 2. That the outward signs of the covenant are not safe harbors or fortresses in which God's people are able to hide their disobedience And their unbelief. If anything. The observance of the outward rites. And the ceremonies of the covenant. Will only magnify the weight of our transgression. To possess the law. And to keep it merely in its external regulations. Such as observing circumcision for the Jew. Is not a position of safety Paul says. But of terrible danger. It is not to be hid from the wrath of God, but exposed to it in the worst possible way. For his scrutiny rests most severely and powerfully upon the church of God. Upon those who observe the ordinances. The judgment of God begins with the household of God, James tells us. This was the great thing the Jews had missed. Now I'm speaking of the ordinances or the ceremonies of the covenant. We are immediately aware of the way these things apply to us as well. For we too, as uh, those living within a covenantal arrangement with God, have our own rites and ceremonies. In the Old Covenant, it included circumcision and reading of the law. These are the things that Paul pinpoints. In the New Covenant, it takes other forms. It takes the form of the very things we're doing here, along with the early church, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayer, to breaking of bread, that is the Lord's Supper. The outward forms of the New Covenant are prayer, preaching and the Lord's Supper uh, along with praise. And so we need to understand the purpose of circumcision and of all of the outward covenantal signs and forms and rites. They are not meant to be an end unto themselves. 
which was an error actually the reformers had to combat with uh, the Roman Catholic Church. They do not confer grace automatically. That is equally true of the New Covenant arrangement. The preaching and the sacraments are not an end unto themselves. They do not confer salvation or saving grace automatically. They will not save by merely observing them. A man is not saved because he sits in the pew and he sings the hymns and he listens to the sermons and he takes the Lord's Supper. That is not salvation. And yet that is precisely how the Jew conceived of salvation. He observed the ceremonies and the rites of the covenant. Therefore, he was saved. But that isn't the purpose of the rites. It's only when the inward reality corresponds to the outward observance. And when the outward observance leads to the cultivation of the inward realities. That the outward signs have any value with regard to salvation. Preaching, to use the new covenant example, saves no one. Unless, as a result of the preaching, it produces in the heart. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, faith and repentance. As as an inward change. That is, uh, unless it produces a result that corresponds to its purpose. Likewise, circumcision... Profits nothing, Paul says, unless it's accompanied with those saving graces which it was meant to produce and to uh, signify. Which was an inward transformation, a circumcision of the heart. But short of that, circumcision and all of the observances of the rites of the old covenant became just another excuse for the Jew, for his disobedience and for his sin. An excuse that was in reality... Empty and would avail him nothing on the last day. But the question that arises, this is where chapter 3 verses 1 through 2 come in, is this is a natural objection. Again, Paul, if you look at Romans, he's essentially anticipating one objection after another. He states his theme in chapter 1 verses 16 to 17 and then he just anticipates objection after objection after objection. And so the objection that he anticipates in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 is, does that mean that there is no point in observing the rites of the covenant? If, in the case of so many, they do not save? That is a very common argument. In fact, it is perhaps one of the commonest arguments of evangelicalism today, if you can think in terms of uh, the low ecclesiology the low church mentality that you find in the church today, it's simply the result of running too far with this argument. It's it's pointing to the case of the multitude of the Jews and even of Christians and saying, look at them sitting under the preaching and observing the, the ordinances and nothing happens. If anything, the weight of their transgression is seen in, uh, in, in, in their defiance of those ordinances. Their sin is only magnified through them. Would it not be better just to cultivate a quiet piety uh, a me and Jesus kind of piety in the inward man and, and not be trapped in all of the, tra- the entrapments of worship that the Jews fell into. That's the kind of argument uh, that Paul was anticipating and confronting. And as I say, which has a familiar ring to it, you'd actually be better off to avoid these things. That way you can get away from the formalism of the Jews and again, falling into the trap that they fell into. But his response is stated in chapters Uh, Chapter three, verses one and two. What advantage has the Jew then or what profit? What is the profit of the of circumcision much in every way? 
There is tremendous profit and value in these things the apostle is saying. They are not to be considered worthless simply because so many fail to realize their true value. If a man ignores his birthright, as Esau did, that doesn't make his birthright worthless. It rather makes him a fool. And so Paul argues that these things, whether considered from the standpoint of the old covenant, circumcision and possessing the law and the word of God, or preaching in the sacraments of the new covenant, these things do in fact make a tremendous difference. They carry with them an unspeakable advantage, an obvious advantage to the man who possesses them and observes them. The man who sits under preaching, for example. Where is the prophet in preaching? Much in every way. Perhaps it doesn't change him. In fact, most often it doesn't. But does that make the preaching worthless? May it never be, Paul says. It only makes the claim of the man who sits under preaching and claims, because I sat under preaching, therefore I was a Christian. It makes that claim worthless. Because simply observing the ordinances is not salvation. But that doesn't make the ordinances worthless the preaching only has value and it carries with it always this amazing potential and this obvious advantage to the man who sits under it but only when it reaches into the inward man and penetrates the heart and produces an actual change but let us not denigrate the preaching or the sacraments because the careless sinner Or the proud hypocrites scorn these tremendous blessings. Whether the Jew of the Old Covenant or the so-called formalist or Christian of the New Covenant. But if circumcision became uncircumcision, returning to the argument of verses uh, 25 through 29, when not accompanied with its intended purpose, namely a transformation of life, the question becomes... Who was the real Jew? And that's the kind of thing we find Paul asking throughout, uh, throughout his epistles. Not just from the standpoint of the Old Covenant, certainly there as well, but also from the standpoint of the New Covenant. Who was the one, in other words, who enjoyed the very things that the Jew thought he enjoyed by virtue of his outward observance? Who was able truly to hide within uh, the bastion of safety and to be safe from the wrath of God? But I think we already have our answer. Does circumcision make one a Jew? Does the law? No. The Jew is not one who is circumcised, not even from the standpoint of the old covenant. That was the fallacy of the Jews, to think that the outward sign alone made one a Jew. But they missed, again, even from the standpoint of the teaching of the Old Testament, the point of the sign, which was always to point to the reality, circumcision of the heart. And what matters God was indicating, even to Abraham, is that you possess not the sign, but the reality. In that regard, you might not even possess the sign, Paul says, verses 26 and 27. But it really doesn't matter. Of course, if you possess the sign, you're at a distinct advantage. But what matters is what occurs in the realm of the heart and of the spirit. And even beyond that, as he concludes chapter 2, the way in which God views us. You notice he says... He speaks of the change uh, in the heart, the inward man, in the spirit. But then he says, speaking of the true Jew, whose praise is from God and not of man. And that has, uh, 
I think a very fitting ring to it as we think of what Paul is describing in the book of Romans. The question is, how does God view us? Not how do we view ourselves, not as how does the world view us, but how does God view us? I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He says, what makes a Jew is not that he's born of the nation of Israel. It's his relationship to God. It's not circumcision, he says. It's the heart. And I think that sums up everything that Paul is saying in these verses very well. Outward blessings may do much to impress man. They might uh, gain a great deal of human praise. The world might say, here is a man who is serious. Here is a man who is religious, who attends church and so forth. Even as the world goes on uh, with its amusements, you always find him in church on Sunday. And so his praise comes from man. But does that make one a Jew? That's not what matters, Paul says. What matters and what makes one a Jew, and this has always been true, is that his relationship to God is sound. It's that he is, as a sinner, one who is reconciled to God. He is one who is right with God. And so is one who is right with God. His inner man conforms to the outward picture that he finds in the law and in the outward rite of circumcision and so forth. And, and the point is, God is able to see this. Even if the world can't see it, God can see the inner man. Here is a true Jew, a Jew indeed. One who rests not on gifts but on graces. One who thinks of his relationship to God, not in terms of outward privileges, though he never denigrates those outward privileges. But he thinks rather in terms of the inner man and salvation and of his relationship to God. And so the great distinction that Paul is making here that we ought to notice, and it's right there in verses 28 and 29, that dispels Uh, The error of formalism, let us call it. Formalism meaning, I attend church, therefore I'm a Christian. Well, you've come very far, Paul says, but not nearly uh, far enough. The great distinction is that between the outward and the inward. And what we ought to realize is that the whole point of the outward was always to point in that direction. Again, the outward was never an end unto itself. It always pointed unto The inward. And so then to answer the question that I asked earlier, and I said I would come back to this, the Jews said, here is a sign of my position of safety. But that is not what circumcision was. It's an outward sign. It was rather a sign of the inward reality. It was a sign of the inward blessings. And it is those things, when the outward corresponds to the inward, That makes one a Jew indeed. Thus Paul says in Romans chapter 9 verse 6. And this is a kind of characteristic statement for Paul. Uh, He says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That is, not everyone who is an outward Jew is a Jew inwardly. And there he makes in chapter 9 the call of God, the deciding, distinguishing factor. But you see how this applies to us today in the modern situation. The danger of the Jews. You remember what Jesus said to the disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Do you realize that the same dangers that confronted the Jews confront the church in every age? What is the danger? The danger, again, is to rely on the outward. To say, I attend church, therefore I am a Christian. Now, the reverse is certainly uh, uh, not true. If, If I... 
If I don't attend church, there's no use in claiming you're a Christian. So you don't run into the other extreme, which, again, Paul anticipates in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to close with those verses. But don't go too far in the other direction. That of formalism. To rest solely in the outward. To say, because I go to church, because I receive the sacrament, and because I listen to sermons, I am safe. I read my Bible daily. Do you not see that is precisely what the Jew did? And will you not learn and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? But then let us consider our own relationship uh, as a final point to the gospel ordinances uh, of which we participate weekly and, and, and hopefully twice weekly on the Sabbath day. The preaching, the sacraments, prayer and so forth. What is our relationship as participants of a new covenant to the outward ordinances of a new covenant? Again, gospel ordinances. Do we conclude, again, based on my assertion that because I go to church, I am not therefore a Christian, do we conclude that they have no value? If it is possible that these things might be observed and still not saved. And and the answer is, uh, what Paul's answer is here, certainly not. Or he says, much in every way, stating it positively. And that's the first thing to see with respect to our observance of the outward signs, going to church, that the assertion that these things have no value, and in fact they carry with them an implicit danger that if you observe them too regularly, you think of what people say about weekly communion. Well, you've got to be careful, they say. If you observe it too much, you might slip into formalism. Well, that's true, but that's not an automatic kind of thing. That is the kind of assertion that we as Christians must forcefully cast aside. That because that might happen, and often does happen, therefore these things have no value. To treat the ordinances of the covenant, even circumcision from the standpoint of the old covenant, as something that was worthless because it did not save, is is great sin, in fact. It is to denigrate the sign of the covenant and therefore the God of the covenant. And so to the question, is there any profit in these things? Let us always say much in every way. And let us see, again, as Christians of the 21st century, what a privilege it is, especially as Paul says here, to possess the word of God. Verse 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. He is pointing specifically to their possession of the law and the way or, or of the scriptures and the way in which God entrusted the old covenant church with the scriptures. And the same exact blessing is true of us today. It is our most obvious and distinct advantage that we possess the word of God. Does that save us automatically? Obviously not. And yet, let us see what a difference it makes. And so the question becomes, just as it was for the Jews, so I ask you, what are you making of your privilege? You see, once you realize that these things are great and profitable advantages, to use the language of Paul, then you begin to realize your advantage. You see the the poor world uh, around you perishing for lack of knowledge. They do not possess the scriptures, nor do they care to possess them. But you are amazed that God would ever entrust his word to you. Can such a blessing, beloved, ever fully be calculated or measured? Here we are. 
I know the world doesn't value it. But here we are sitting under the preaching of the word of God. Does that not amaze you every Sunday? The very word of God entrusted to you as your distinct privilege and blessing and advantage. Who can say there is no advantage in these things? The oracles of God, Paul is saying. That is the very voice of God heard in the reading and the preaching by God's people week after week. And I would speak to the children as well. To be born to Christian parents does not make you a Christian automatically. But do not fail to see the prophet in having Christian parents. The value of having them bring you to church and teach you the scriptures in the home. There is indeed great value and great profit in these things. But how is that profit realized by us? If we acknowledge again that to have Christian parents or to come to church does not make one a Christian automatically in the same way that circumcision did not for the Jew. How is it that we make use of our privilege? And the answer is the same as it was for the Jew in the old covenant. It is that we content ourselves with nothing less than the reality. We are never content to possess the outward form, not until it changes us. And this is something, as I say, that isn't automatic. You often have to wrestle with God for a long period. Uh, Glenn, you just said that this morning. God brings us through the valley. But if we, if we continue to pursue the promise, then we will find the reality, which is God himself, a God who is reconciled to us. The Jew is the one who is right with God. And that is true in every age. We never rest until we find the blessings that are signified in the ordinances. And so we do not content ourselves, as some Protestants do even today, with the waters of baptism. Not until we experience the washing of regeneration by the Spirit of God. That's just one example. And we are always, as we observe the ordinances, whether it's baptism or anything else, looking for the blessings that are signified thereby. And we realize why it was that God gave them in the first place. Again, not as an end unto themselves. Not as though you simply observe them and are automatically saved. But precisely as a means of grace. That's how we refer to them. These are the means by which the inner man is reformed and refashioned. And the graces that are thereby signified are cultivated in the inward man. Which is why you will never grow. As a Christian, if you don't go to church and observe the ordinances. And do you realize the greatest thing of all is not just your own personal transformation as a result of observing these things. But it is the way that you meet with God in the ordinances. The way you meet with God in the preaching and at the table and so forth. Jesus saying where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. That's the great thing we're seeking is to meet with God. And to be transformed, or as he says in Exodus, sanctified by his holiness. Meeting with God in the ordinances, that is the great end of observing them. I am always struck when I read the Puritans of how much they stress this point. They never conceive of meeting with God outside of the ordinances, but always in the ordinances. And that is the way you brush aside formalism. You don't brush aside the ordinances. You look for God in them. You expect to meet with God and you wrestle long until you do. And only then we realize that these things have any value whatsoever. 
And the true Jew was always one who sought this, whether in the Old or the New Covenant. One who did not content himself with hearing, but with believing. One who does not content himself with possessing the law, but with keeping it. Nor with participating in the means of grace solely, but with experiencing their power and meeting with God and his son in them. But think also in terms here of the setting that Paul is describing. And this is a way of of underscoring everything that I'm saying. And that is the last day and the judgment of God. When you stand there before him. Remember, he says, whose praise is from God and not from men. The question is, he also uses the language of prophet. When you stand on that day and are laid bare under his scrutiny, the question is, what will profit you then? What will avail with God? Will it profit you then on that day to say, you know, God, I was baptized as an infant. Beyond that, I listened to a thousand sermons, maybe more. Sunday after Sunday, I listened, I heard, I tried to put it in practice. I counted it my highest privilege to do so. The question is, will such things profit you on that day? Will they justify you in his court? When God looks on you on the last day, what will he look for? To such a one who rested in outward privilege solely, he will say, very well, you may have done all these things, but was there any lasting change? Were you renewed by the spirit in the inner man? Did it ever lead you to ascertain whether I, a holy God, was for or against you? Did you ever learn what it meant to be saved and to be justified by my grace, by faith in my son? You see, all of this that we are doing amounts to nothing whatsoever if God is not pleased. It is his assessment that matters. It's what he thinks of us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm not interested what others think, Paul says, or even what I think of myself. It doesn't amount to anything. It's what God will say to me on that great day. And that's what we're seeking. We know that if he is not pleased, if he is not prepared to praise us, and just think of that language. Whose praise is from God. We think of the words of what uh, Jesus says. Prospectively to the faithful servant. When God receives him on the last day. Well done good and faithful servant. That's what it is to be praised from God. But if that is not what awaits us. Then everything we did Sunday after Sunday. Amounts to precisely nothing. We may be able to boast. In a great many things on that day. But if these things do not change us, if they do not make us Jews indeed, or to use the language of the new covenant, Christians indeed, those who are born again, those who are truly following after Jesus as his disciples, and therefore those things which achieve his praise and his favor and his salvation, then I say again, they achieve nothing at all. They give us no solid joy and lasting peace, and they will never justify But when you when you consider what God is indicating in the ordinances, whatever ordinance it is that you consider, he is indicating precisely how it is his pleasure is achieved in us, how it is. In other words, we might be praised by him. But it was never by a mere performance. How well David knew this in his sin. And we we just sung Psalm 51. Listen to these words. Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17. Speaking to God, you do not desire sacrifice. That's the outward ordinance or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David is not saying 
And too many have run too far with this thought that he despised the ordinances or that God despised the ordinances. But he was saying just how much God hated the observance of those ordinances when they were not met with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. When they were observed merely as an outward token of performance, devoid of the inward reality. But when these things go together, David is saying, when the sacrifices of God are offered with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, then Paul says, these God will not, or, or David, excuse me, these God will not despise, which is to say, he will be pleased. And so our praise will come from God and not from man. In other words, What God is really looking for, as David indicates in Psalm 51 and Paul here, the end of Romans chapter 2, what he wants is that each of us have faith and that we are born again, that we have all come uh, by observing the ordinances to experience the reality of religion, of saving religion. The gospel is the power of God to save, not that we have observed merely the bare form. Nothing less than this, beloved, is pleasing to God. Nothing less than this will satisfy him on the last day. Let me read again the last two verses. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Amen. And let us come to the table now together.